Dear friends, I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn to 2 Thessalonians. We're going to continue our series in this letter titled, Living in Light of the Lord's Return. We've gone through the initial greeting and Paul's prayer of thanksgiving for the saints here, and now we're going to look at the rest of chapter 1. So beginning in verse 5, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. This is what Holy Scripture says. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we approach your word this morning with a heart of humility. Lord, in these words are words of comfort for those who are suffering for the name of Christ. And Lord, we pray that as this word is expounded and preached, that, Lord, you would be the God of all comfort to those who are suffering. But we also see in this text words that are difficult to hear. And I pray that your truth, the whole counsel of God, would fall on fresh and humble ears today. Lord, I pray that you would help every single soul in this room to respond accordingly. Help Help us, Lord, so that no one would walk away unchanged and unfazed by these marvelous truths. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. The history of the church is filled with stories of Christians who have suffered and died for their faith. You can see it right in the Bible with stories of men like Stephen who was stoned to death for preaching the gospel. Tradition tells us that almost every single apostle or disciple of Jesus Christ suffered and died for proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. On top of all of that, you have stories of other martyrs like Ignatius of Antioch who was killed in the Colosseum, Polycarp the bishop of Smyrna who was burned at the stake, Justin Martyr who was beheaded for refusing to bow to Caesar, Perpetua who was killed in the arena for not recanting her faith in Christ, William Tyndale, the man who translated the Bible into the English language, burned at the stake because of his belief in salvation by grace. Lady Jane Grey, executed for her Protestant faith. Jim Elliot, violently killed by the Akaw Indians that he was ministering to. 
stories after stories of faithful men and women who have suffered and died because of their faith in Christ. And the reality is the the list goes on and on and on and on of Christians known and unknown to the world. And that list will only continue to grow until the Lord Jesus returns. See, one of the things that we have to understand is that suffering is an indelible mark of genuine Christianity. Suffering is is part and parcel with our Christian faith. There is no Christian faith apart from suffering. And this is something that that the Thessalonians knew all too well. We need to remember that ever since the birth of this church, all they have known is a life of affliction and persecution. They've never experienced a season of peace from the hostility of the world. They've never known what it feels like to be able to freely gather together and express their faith and worship as a church without a target on their back. What would it have been like to be the Thessalonians in this time? I think it's a little bit hard for us to imagine, but I also think it's good for us to remember that even though our situation here is different, there are currently churches in the world, Christians in the world, who know exactly what this feels like. Christians who cannot freely gather together because of fear of persecution. Now, it's true that our experience of persecution is not exactly the same as these Thessalonians or churches across the world. We don't have an angry mob of people dragging Christians out of their their homes. We don't have pastors and missionaries being forced to flee the city, but that doesn't mean we aren't experiencing afflictions and persecutions of other kinds. I imagine that there are some of you in here right now who are acutely aware of what it means to suffer for the sake of Christ because you are living that reality right now. Every day is a day on the battlefield for you at work. You've lost family and friends. You've been humiliated and left out, and you have been the object of ridicule and contempt. And there are probably others of you who do not know that experience well right now, but if what the Bible says is true then persecution will come. It was our Lord Jesus Christ who said himself that as the world persecuted him, they will persecute the Thessalonians and they will persecute you, Grace Fellowship Church. And so the big question that I want to ask you this morning is this. How are we supposed to bear with the suffering? How are we supposed to bear with this hard reality. Because suffering isn't isn't easy. And if we're not careful to guard our minds and our hearts, we can so easily go into that place where we begin to doubt the goodness of God. And I imagine that maybe some of you are there even right now. Brothers and sisters, what you and I need most in a life of suffering is a clear vision of our glorious future. Because a clear vision of our glorious future gives us a clear perspective of our present suffering. And do you know what that kind of clarity produces? It produces real hope. 
Hope that is able to shine as a bright light in those dark days. Hope is what God gives to his people to equip them and empower them to faithfully suffer well while enduring persecution. This is what the church needs this day, in the past, and in every generation to come. We need to be a people of hope in this antagonistic world. And what we have in our text today are words written by the Apostle Paul that are primarily meant to instill hope. And and it's not hope that our difficult circumstances will, will change and life as a Christian will get easier here on earth. No, it's hope that is bound up in the goodness of God and in the glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's what I want you to see first. Hope in God's righteous judgment. Look with me now at verse 5 again. Paul begins this section by saying, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Now, to be honest, this is a very tricky verse to interpret because he doesn't explicitly say what the this is in the beginning of verse 5. What's the this referring to? As a matter of fact, the word this isn't even in the original Greek language. It just starts by, be, by, by saying evidence of the righteous judgment of God. So, w- without all the other possible interpretations, I'm just going to give you, for the sake of time, how I best understand this verse and explain briefly why I believe this is the case. I believe that what the Apostle Paul is referring to as the evidence of God's righteous judgment is the suffering and the affliction of the Christians. And, and part of the reason why is because, look, look, ahead, look uh, just before in, at, at the end of verse 4. There he talks or he ends verse 4 by talking about the afflictions that the Thessalonians were enduring. So he says, literally, the afflictions that you are enduring, evidence of God's righteous judgment. And what that's meant to do is is he's holding those two statements in parallel. He's saying that the afflictions are the evidence. And, And the other reason why I understand it this way is because it seems to make the most sense out of the whole text. So Paul is basically saying this to the Thessalonians. He's saying, look, do you want to see proof of God's righteous judgment? Do you want to see the evidence of the righteous judgment of God? then look to your suffering. Look to your suffering. Because the fact that you are suffering is proof that God is judging righteously. I want you to think about that for a moment. Let that reality settle in. Speaking earlier of the mind going to bad places, what tends to happen when we as Christians suffer unjust affliction and persecution? The, the reality is we can start to, to wonder why. Because let's be honest, it doesn't feel fair. It doesn't seem right. Why are the godly ones suffering while the wicked prosper? You know, before Paul left on sabbatical, he was preaching through Psalm 73, and that passage is, is written by a man who knows this experience well. He talks about stumbling in the world because he is suffering while the wicked are prospering, and he doesn't understand. It's a wearisome task to understand this thing that seems so backwards. It seems wrong. It seems like the world is upside down, and it's not the way it should be, and yet... Here is Paul saying 
that God in his perfect wisdom has determined that it is good for you to suffer for the sake of Christ. And listen, this is always going to be hard to understand until you realize the wonderful purpose that God has for your suffering. We need to understand that suffering in itself isn't inherently good. No one likes suffering. No one says that suffering is good. Christians aren't masochists who who love the feeling of pain and suffering, but we can endure suffering and even rejoice in it because we know that God is doing something through it. That's where Paul takes us next in verse 5. He says, this is the evidence, this, the suffering is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that, here's the purpose, you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. In the divine providence of God, suffering is what makes us worthy for the kingdom of God. And and we need to be careful here because this doesn't mean that suffering makes us deserving of the kingdom of God. Nowhere in the Bible does he talk about that. We need to remember at all times that suffering is not our ticket into the kingdom. Jesus is our ticket into the kingdom. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not suffering, not being a good person, not a good church, none of that. The only way to get to the Father is through me. But when we have that gospel ticket, when we have that justification by faith alone, suffering is the path of preparation that makes us fit to enter into the kingdom of God. That's what considered worthy means. It's not about being deserving. It means being fitted and suited. Suffering prepares us for glory. And and this is an idea that is all throughout the New Testament. Let me just give you two examples here. Acts chapter 14, verse 22, when Paul is going around, he is strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us, what? An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You see, the reason why suffering for the kingdom proves God's righteousness is because God means to use that suffering in your life to show you that you are set on the right path that leads to glory. Here's how John Stott explained this. He wrote, Their suffering was itself evidence of the justice of God because it was the first part of the equation that guaranteed the second part, which is glory, would follow. Suffering was the first part that guaranteed the second part, which is glory. When you see your suffering through the lens of its purpose and ultimate destination, then you can see that suffering is not a sign of God's anger towards you. It is actually a sign of God's grace, evidence that he is leading you into glory and that he is preparing you for that glory. So, brothers and sisters, what this means is that we can endure suffering in this world without despising 
the suffering. See the goodness and the righteousness of God in all of it because it's there if you have eyes to see it. Look and see the righteousness of God in your present suffering and where that's leading and then look ahead and see the righteous judgment of God that is to come when he pours out his wrath against all the enemies of the church. That's where he goes next in verse 6. Look with me there now at verse 6. He carries on and he says, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and, grant, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the godly suffer while the wicked prosper and rest, again, things seem upside down. Things seem backward. Things seem a little bit twisted. It's not as it should be. And we learned just now that God has a wonderful and marvelous purpose for your suffering. But that won't always be the case. You see, what verse 6 is talking about here, friends, is that there is a day coming where God will perfectly balance the scales of justice. Everything that feels upside down will be made right side up. Everything that feels backwards will go forwards. Everything that is, is twisted in this world will be untangled and made straight. And here he makes it very specific that those who oppressed the believers will be afflicted and those who were oppressed will be granted relief. But here's what you need to understand. This won't happen during our life. What I mean is this, if you're hoping to live life here on earth with perfect godly justice being executed day after day after day, then it's probably best that you let those expectations go because it'll never happen. Yes, it, it, it still means that we ought to be praying for our governments to rule well. It means that we ought to be prioritizing and practicing justice and righteousness. But in this broken and corrupt world with sinful people and sinful rulers, injustice will persevere. Persecution will persevere. You will continue to experience evil being done to you without the satisfaction of justice. And the Lord wants you to see all of that, and he wants you to know that it is okay. It's okay. It's okay if injustice is allowed to linger a little bit longer in our life. It's okay for persecution to carry on without justice being satisfied in that very moment. And the reason why it's okay is because the Lord has promised that when Jesus returns, he will perfectly balance the scales of justice. And that's the day that we're looking ahead to. Look again at verse 6 and 7. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The scales of justice will be perfectly balanced only on the day the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And this will be nothing like his first coming you see, only a handful of people knew about Jesus and his first coming, but the entire world will know the second coming of Christ. 
He won't enter into this world quietly as a humble baby born in a manger, but he will descend from heaven. And, and the point of that is you can't miss the sky. Everyone is able to see the sky, and the skies will open up, and Jesus will come down as the divine king and judge with a host of powerful angels and will execute his perfect justice. Look at verse 8. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In those moments when you're treated unfairly for being a Christian or when you're attacked for your faith, the reason why you don't have to defend yourself and the reason why you don't have to retaliate against your accusers is because Jesus Christ is the great avenger. The Marvel Cinematic Universe got it wrong. Okay, they put together a team of superheroes and called them the avenger. They were dead wrong. Jesus is the one true avenger. And he is coming to avenge his people. And he is coming to avenge his holiness. Now, Paul here mentions two types of people who will receive this divine vengeance. He, he first mentions people who don't know God, and then he mentions people who disobey the gospel of Christ. And, and I think what Paul is doing here is he is basically summarizing the unbeliever. He's summarizing those who are not Christians. Now, now it's interesting that Paul talks about people who don't know God because the, the, the Bible tells us that the reality is everyone knows God. Romans chapter 1 talks about this truth. The, the, the same apostle that wrote this letter is the same apostle that wrote Romans 1. And there he talks about how God has plainly revealed himself to all of his creation through the natural world. In other words, nature proclaims and testifies to the existence of God. But what the ungodly and unrighteous people do is, is they take that truth and they suppress it. They push it deep down, even to the point of convincing themselves that God isn't real. And so it says in Romans chapter 1, 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So when Paul mentions people who don't know God, He's talking about people who have suppressed the truth about God and have refused to acknowledge God as God. And in doing so, I think the other side of that coin is, the, the result is, they disobey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we, we need to remember that the gospel is first and foremost good news. It is an information of good news it is the good news that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came into the world. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross for sinners. He paid the penalty in full, and he rose again on the third day. It is a declaration of good news. But what this verse makes clear is that the good news carries with it a divine summoning of the soul. This good news carries with it a command that must be obeyed. What, what, what I mean is you cannot simply hear the gospel and think that's okay. You must respond to the gospel. Whenever the good news of the gospel is being preached, in that very proclamation is King Jesus calling on you to obey him 
by turning away from your sins and putting your trust in Jesus Christ. There is no staying neutral with the gospel. You must obey it. You must obey the gospel, and if you're not, then functionally you are disobeying the gospel. Those who have rejected God and disobeyed his gospel, the very people who stand against the church will be afflicted with the vengeance of Christ. And in that very moment, brothers and sisters, you will be vindicated. That's what point two is all about. Point two is about hoping in Christ's vindicating work. Earlier in verse seven, Paul talked about Jesus being revealed from heaven. Emphasis there on the word revealed. When you think about the word revealed, it it implies something that is previously concealed and hidden and unknown. It's like when new parents have a gender reveal party with their newborn baby. They, they don't know what the gender is until they pop that balloon or they cut into that cake and, and they see, is it, is it blue, is it pink? And only then, after that great reveal, do they know what they're having. You see, the end of the world will be marked by a great revealing of Jesus Christ. And I think Paul specifically uses the word revealed here not, not, not appearing, not coming, not returning. He, he uses those words at, at other times when he's talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. But here, to suffering saints, he says that Jesus will be revealed, and he does that, I believe, in order to encourage you to continue living by faith. What is faith? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Not seen. As Christians, you have centered your whole lives on a person that you cannot see right now with your eyes. You can't smell Jesus. You can't audibly hear Jesus. You can't reach out and touch Jesus. You can't physically point people to Jesus and say, see, he's there, he's real. And because of that, people will think you're crazy. People will think that you are absolutely foolish and delirious they're going to think that you are wasting your life on something or rather someone that isn't real. And it can be hard to live with that kind of ridicule, can't it? Some of you know that experience well when, when people look at you with a funny face or, or, or they mock you and they, and they make fun of you because your whole life is revolved around something that isn't physically here and can be touched and seen. Oh, but brothers and sisters, be patient and endure suffering well, because one day, what you see by faith right now, the entire world, every single eye, will see for real when Jesus returns with his glorious angels. And in that very moment, the mouths of mockers will be shut, and the scoffers will be silenced, and the whole world will know that you were right. And you will know for certain that that all of the pain, all of the suffering, all the persecution was worth it. That is what it means to be vindicated. It means to be proven right and to be cleared of blame and suspicion. On that great day of Christ's revealing, you won't need faith anymore because you will simply see Jesus in 
in all of His splendor and in all of His glory and in all of His majesty, and every single eye will see that as well. You will gaze upon His beauty and you will be simply filled with wonder and astonishment, and Jesus Christ will be honored in our midst. Drop down for a second of verse 10. We'll skip verse 9 and come back to it in a moment. What I just said is exactly what Paul describes as the experience of believers. Verse 10, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. See, this will be our experience at the coming of Christ. We will marvel at him and we will exalt him for his infinite beauty and worth. But what will be a wonderful experience for us will be an absolute terror to those who did not believe. Come back with me now to verse 9. In verse 9, Paul goes on to further explain in detail what will happen to those who reject God and disobey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. While you marvel and glory in Christ forever, the ungodly will wail and suffer the punishment forever. Friends, what Paul gives us here is a powerful and sobering picture of the doctrine of hell. People try to imagine what hell is like. I don't know if you've thought of some crazy ideas of what hell would actually be like. I used to do that as a kid. What is it that makes hell, hell? What is it about hell that is so severe and so bad? What is it about hell that strikes fear into people's hearts? And we can go to a number of different places in the Bible. Jesus talks about the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. In other places in the Bible, like Revelation, we see hell as the very lake of fire and sulfur, a fire that will never be turned off. But here Paul explains hell from a different perspective. He says that hell will be a place of weeping and suffering forever and ever, look at verse 9, away from the presence of the Lord and away from the glory of his might. Now, uh, the English translation here uses the word presence, but the word that's used there could actually be translated as the word face. So I would understand this to be more a, a turning away from the face of God because what does the face of God symbolize in the Bible? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. It is a, a picture of blessing when God shines his face on his people. Now when Paul is speaking to the grieving saints in his first letter in chapter four, when, when he's talking to the Christians who have lost loved ones in Christ, the very climax of his comfort comes at the end of verse 17 when he says, and so we will always be with the Lord forever. That, that is the climax of the comfort. That is our great Christian hope. It is the very thing that we are striving for and longing for because of who the Lord is. He is the source of all that is good. 
He is the source of life itself. He is the source of true happiness and infinite joy. He is the fountain of every blessing. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. And what Paul is saying is that hell is a place where you will be cut off from God. This is the essence of hell. It's not primarily about the fire. It's not primarily about the weeping or the gnashing. Those things are true experiences. But the worst thing about hell is that you will be away from the presence of God. And all that will be left is eternal destruction, despair, and darkness forever and ever. See, the irony in this whole thing is that the very people who rejected God and wanted nothing to do with him, their punishment is being given exactly what they wanted. Alienation from God, eternal separation from God, forever and ever. I've been meditating on this passage for the last few weeks and months And I would say that I have felt a very different kind of weight on my heart than I ever have before. And that is because as I was studying the doctrine of hell in such depth, I couldn't help but think that there are some of you right now in this room who will suffer an eternity in hell. And I fear for your soul And in this past week, I have stopped in my studies and I have prayed earnestly for you that this vision of hell would literally keep you up at night. I have prayed that you would feel something of the fragility of this life of yours. You don't know what the future holds. You could literally be one second away from an eternity of hell. Do you feel that? You could walk out those doors and the very next step could be your first step into the lake of fire forever. And I have been praying desperately that you would feel the crushing weight of this sobering reality so deep in your hearts that you could do nothing but run to the only one who can save your souls from perishing in this way. Friends, Jesus Christ is the only one who can save you You cannot save yourself. You are not good enough to save yourselves. And the only reason why Jesus can save you is because he sacrificed his life on the cross and on that cross, he suffered hell so that you wouldn't have to. Do you know what Jesus said while he hung crucified on the cross? With sorrow and pain in his heart, he cried out, my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? This is the Son of God who has been with the Father from eternity past saying, why have you forsaken me? And do you know why Jesus said those words? He said those words and he experienced being forsaken by God, being turned away from the face of the Lord so that you would never, ever, ever 
have to say those words in your own life. It's true that you might be one second away from an eternity of hell, but it's also true that you are literally one second away from an eternity of heaven. If you would but turn away from your sins and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. How you respond to Jesus right now in this very moment determines whether or not you will have eternal life or eternal destruction. I am pleading with you to stop delaying. I am pleading with you to stop coming up with excuses. You don't need to have a perfect faith. You need to, it just needs to be a little faith, but that faith needs to be in Christ. Choose Christ. Choose Jesus and let his glorious return be a day of celebration and joy, not a day of fear and terror, because that's what it will be. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming, and he will vindicate his people. He will punish all those who opposed him, and he will be glorified by all those who love him. And that day, the suffering of Christ's people will come to an end, but until that day comes, our suffering will go on. And our hope is not only in God's present righteousness and future justice, but our hope is also in the grace of God that will carry us and preserve us all the way into that glorious future. So here's point number three, hope in God's preserving grace. Now, when we pray for other Christians who are suffering affliction, I, I think it's easy for us to automatically start praying that God would remove the affliction from their lives. And, and, and that's not necessarily wrong. I mean, consider Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed, Lord, take this cup from me. But he also said, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. But I want you to think about this, that between the two letters that Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he prays or he mentions prayer 14 times in those two letters and never once does he pray that their afflictions would be taken away. He is far less concerned about your comfort and ease in this life. He is far more concerned about your growth in godliness and the motivation of your heart and the glory that is to come. So look with me now at verse 11. He concludes the section with a prayer by saying, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So you see that instead of praying that their afflictions be removed, Paul is praying that God would make the Thessalonians worthy of their calling. That, that word there, worthy, is the same word that is used in verse 5, right? That you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. 
And, and, and once again, it's, it's not the idea of being deserving, but it's the idea of being fitted and suited for the kingdom of God. It's about looking more and more like kingdom citizens. But, but look carefully at who makes us worthy of our calling. It's not us. It's not the apostles. It's not pastors or missionaries or family or friends. It's God and God alone. Only God has the power to make us worthy of our calling. God is the only tailor who can properly fit us with the garments of righteousness so that we are appropriately addressed or addressed for that great paradise and celebration that is to come. The point here is we are unable to make ourselves worthy. Only God can make us worthy which is why we need to be the kind of Christians who are always looking to him and depending on him and praying this for ourselves and for one another that God would make us worthy of our calling. And not only that, pray that the Lord would help each and every one of us, look at verse 11 again, fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. What what Paul is talking about here is our good resolutions and our good works. When the Lord saves us, something amazing happens. Not only does God change our eternal standing, but God actually changes our hearts. As Christians, we begin to develop new desires and new goals and new purposes that are good and right and pleasing to the Lord. But no matter how passionate and powerful you are, Every good work that you attempt to do independent of the Lord God will be useless because unless the Lord builds his house, we labor in vain. What we need is God's power working in us to bring to fruition and to completion the very things that we desire to do for good. That's what it means when when Paul is praying, may God fulfill every resolve for good. He is asking God to take all that we want to do for good and bring it to fruition. Make it actually happen and help us to do it all the way to the end, to complete the task. And so the next time a brother or a sister comes to you and talks about wanting to try something or do something for the Lord, maybe it's a new Bible study Maybe it's being better at hospitality. Maybe it's going out and evangelizing on a Friday night. Maybe it's serving this way or that way, what you can do in those moments. And maybe what they need more than encouragement and your affirmation is your prayer. To take these words from verse 11 and pray that the Lord would fulfill these faith-prompted purposes and desires according to his infinite power. And as you pray this for one another, and as you personally seek to do good, remember that, that, that praying, that becoming worthy, that fulfilling every resolve and every work of faith is not the ultimate end. That is not what we're aiming for ultimately. The end goal is always and forever the glory of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 12. That's where Paul goes next in verse 12. He says, so that, he's he's praying all of these things so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. That is the great purpose of our life. 
all things were created by Christ for Christ. We exist to glorify Christ. It's the very reason that Paul prays that God would make us worthy of our calling and fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith. It's so that Jesus alone would be highly exalted in our midst. It's all about his glory. It is always all about his glory, not your own glory, not the glory of this church. And on that final day, here's what's so beautiful. When Christ is fully glorified in his saints, the reality is we too will share in his glory. You don't have to pursue your own glory because Jesus will share his glory with you. More specifically, it's talking about being raised with new resurrection bodies so that we are eternally fit for glory. New resurrection bodies that will never decay, never perish, so that we will always be with the Lord forever. Glory is the end goal. But look, grace is how we'll get there. And so Paul ends the prayer by saying this, verse 12, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as we are saved by grace, we are also sanctified by grace and we will be glorified by grace. So brothers and sisters, in a world that is filled with tribulations and troubles, suffering and affliction, hope in God's perfect preserving grace in your lives until he takes you into paradise. And as we sang, brother, we will look on the face of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we so much want to be like Jesus Christ. We hear in your word that Jesus endured all of the injustice against him and he endured all of the suffering. He endured all of the scorn of the world around him because he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He was able to look to you and that gave him the hope to persevere faithfully in this world. And I pray that you would help us to be like our Savior until we see him face to face in glory. Give us grace to do that. Help us to look to that day. Come, Lord Jesus, come. In your name we pray, amen.